Christine. And I'm Alan. And we're two pastors with PhDs needing an outlet for all that knowledge rolling around in our heads. So we put our heads together and came up with this podcast. Each week we will discuss a scripture passage from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm going to interview Alan about his biblical knowledge. And I'm going to interview Christy about her amazing knowledge of the Reformation. And then we're going to talk together about the implications for today. Our hope is that between the two of us, we'll come up with some information that will help you with your sermon planning each week. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, and this is the parable of the wedding feast, or sometimes known as the wedding banquet. This is a hard one. Um, You read it the first time, and you think, how am I going to preach on this? (laughs) So it does require that bit of of looking into it, and a little bit of prayer, and a little bit of work in the commentaries, or hopefully our podcast today. Um, And as you as you are into this, you're noticing that it is in both Matthew and Luke. So that's first, the first question I have for Alan is, is about the, the place of this parable in the book of Matthew, which we're working with instead of the book of Luke. Well, that's a, that's a good question. And I think it really gets at the heart of um, what we're dealing with here today in Matthew's gospel. I think most people, when, when they come upon this parable, they think they're more used to Luke's version of the parable because it's it's kind of we have it has that you know go out into the highways and the hedges and you know find beat the bushes and find everybody and bring them in and and that's a feel good thing for us and we like the idea of an inclusion an inclusive kingdom so so that works for us but um that's luke's version matthew's version is is much more edgy um now interestingly both Luke's version of the parable and Matthew's version are set in a context of tension with the Jewish religious leaders. So they both have that same context, but um, the parable in Luke is a lot friendlier. Right, <laughs> right. Say. They don't kill anybody in Luke. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> well, and, and the other thing is that, um, you know, it has those themes that appeal to us, you know, the, the idea of... Um, of an inclusive kingdom, um, you know, and so we, we we see some of that reflected in Matthew's gospel. But then it has this other stuff, and we, it, it makes us wonder what in the world we're supposed to do with this. I mean, because yeah, like you said, I mean, the king goes in and kills them all and burns their town to the ground. You know, <laughs> that doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> it doesn't sound nice. And so, I guess my question for you is, how do you make sense of of this within within Matthew's? So I think we're dealing with something similar to what we dealt with last week with the parable of the tenant farmers. I think we have to look at the parable that Jesus told, and then we have to look at the layer of Matthew's interpretation. And and so um, Matthew has this set in a context of a dispute with the Jewish leaders, and, and it's kind of an ongoing thing. It's it's it, it starts in chapter 21, and it continues in 22, and it goes into chapter 23 with all these you know, woes on on the Jewish religious leaders, and so it's it's very intense polemic here, and um, I, I think that shapes Matthew's reading. 
So Matthew, Matthew has these phrases like um, the, the person without the wedding garment is thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That comes up elsewhere in Matthew's gospel. Interestingly, in, in a context of the healing of the centurion's servant, but it, Jesus contrasts his faith with the lack of faith on the part of people you would expect to have. And so um, it's a you know it's a, it's a similar thing. Also, you have this you have this phrase: "Many are called, few are chosen." That mm-hmm. sounds a lot like Jesus. Interestingly enough, this is the only place in the gospel tradition where that phrase shows up. And it's interesting because that phrase obviously becomes kind of part of our our regular regular vernacular in the church. So interesting that this is it. <laughs> this is the only place in the whole gospel tradition where that is that occurs, at least in the canonical gospels. And, you know, that's it is consistent with a theme in Matthew's gospel, the two ways. Matthew has the two ways. You have the narrow road and you have the broad road. And, and that theme is reflected in a variety of ways in Matthew's gospel. So I, I think we see in those elements of the passage the way Matthew interpreted the gospel. And, and a lot of people, I, I, a lot of people just take it as a, almost as a straightforward allegory. You know, the king is God, the servants are the prophets and Jesus, the, the ones invited were the Jewish people, and particularly in Matthew and Luke, you know, you have this tension between those who were invited and, 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 and those who responded, you know, and, and so, um, uh, again, I think I think we're in the realm of how Matthew read the parable in that respect, and how Matthew was using that in his context, as we talked before about his community is probably in a in a very real conflict with the Jewish synagogue, either in the midst of it or just past it, and and it's still very much part of their experience. Wonderful, and this makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking in terms of. So you're going to preach this, and where you, where do you head with it? Yeah. I mean, we well, understand the context now, but right. that still doesn't give me a way to right. bring this to to everybody. I think again, we're dealing with an ironical parable. I think you know, Jesus may have said the kingdom of heaven is like this, but when you read the parable itself, it's not the way the kingdom works. It's, it's the way the world works. You know, you've got a king who throws a wedding feast for his son. Now, one of the things we have to understand is that in the world of Jesus' day, any king would have been a stand-in for Caesar, and everybody would have known that. So, and, and this particular king wasn't even a very good stand-in ruler because when he threw a party for his son's wedding, none of the really movers and shakers in his territory show up. Now, this is a big deal because um, a royal wedding was about demonstrating the ongoing legitimacy of one's rule, in this case through his son. And the fact that the wedding guests refused to come was kind of a repudiation of his very position as king. And so they're like, they're, it's like they're saying, you know, uh, you know thumbs to you, I'm, I, I don't care about, your, about you or your, your son. I'm not going to show up for the wedding banquet. So that's that's part of what's going on here is that is that I think Jesus is still sort of critiquing the way the world works, the way the world of his day worked. But then, you know, the, the ruler, the king, responds in, in the way any petty client king would do. <laughs> he sends out his soldiers and kills the people and, and 
burns down the town. Well, you know, that's no surprise for a, for a petty client king, but that doesn't work well theologically if we're using, if we're, if we're, if we're allegorizing this and making the king as a representative of God. That creates some really <laughs> uncomfortable feelings there. Well, and of course, I think people what people tend to do is they say, well, this is just another aspect of God. This is a different side of God. But I, that is really problematic for me theologically yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so then I think, I think these are two parables that are, that are put together because they have a similar mm-hmm, setting. Mm-hmm. So then you've got another story. Just, and just when you think, well, maybe this guy's not so bad because he's going to pull in all the common people for the banquet. So just when you begin to think that, then you've got this other story about him finding somebody without a wedding garment. Now, I've always had this question. You know, I want to know what a wedding garment is. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think they, probably, they probably had a concept of what you wore to right, a wedding garment. Right. My question was always, if they went and, and combed the streets to find people good and bad alike, how were they expected to have a wedding garment? Wedding well, garment. <laughs> perhaps perhaps they had a stock of them at the king's house at his at his at his place. So so as they came in, everybody got a wedding garment, you know, and they because because this is really, you know, what's going on here is this king is trying to save face by pretending that he's got this great crowd of his subjects at this wedding feast for his son. And, and so in order to complete the illusion, everybody's got to be wearing a wedding garment. Well, then he, shows, he finds one who's not wearing a wedding garment. In my mind, I think, well, this is just a blatant reminder that this is just a, a put-on, basically. The whole thing is a, is a put-on because the, the real guests refuse to come and refuse to recognize the legitimacy of his reign. <laughs> so, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's... And so he vents what's left of his anger on this guy by casting him out, you know. Right, and, right. And the justification, you know, unfortunately the justification is many are called, few are chosen. And that's Matthew's reading. But, you know, I don't see it that way. I see this, I see both of these parables as, you know, Jesus is reminding him, this is the way the kingdoms of the world work. Right. And the, and the kingdom of heaven works in a very different way. Um now, most commentators, ironically, follow the track of, you know, this is a lesson about how we in the church who've been called must legitimate our calling by our, the way we live our lives. Mm-hmm. We must walk worthy of our calling. Uh, I don't buy that. I mean, because we're talking about a king slaughtering a whole town and raising the place to the ground, you know. I'm, that's, that's, yeah, that's not good theology to me, so, you know. Um, but... Yeah, really, I, that's why I think this, I, I, I'm compelled mm-hmm. to view this from an ironical standpoint, that this is, the, this is a story about mm-hmm. the way the world works, uh, not the way the kingdom works. And so if I were going to preach a pas- sermon on this passage, and I have in the past, you know, I would focus on the way the kingdom of God works. Um, the way the world works is clothing makes the person, appropriate attire is acquired. If you're not dressed appropriately, don't bother showing mm-hmm. up. Uh, we judge people without thinking twice based on outward appearance. That's the way the world works. But the way the kingdom got, works is that there is no dress code. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, everyone is welcome at the table. Um, everyone is accepted. All are called. All are chosen. Um, and, you know, all are welcome. And you can come to the party just as you are. And that fits 
better with at least how I understand the kingdom of God to work. Well, it surely fits better. I would say it surely fits better with the way Jesus. I think so too, with how how it's been revealed otherwise. And so that this all of a sudden, and I think it also makes sense within the context of how they would have heard this. Mm -hmm. And from even the, 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 early on in the church tradition has always been to, to place Jesus and God into this context mm-hmm. when that's not how these folks would have heard no. how, when, they, when they heard it. And uh, it leads me to another question because one of the things we talked about is the parable, as Jesus said it, and then how Matthew presents it within the context here um, is where this parable is outside of the canon, which is in the Gospel of Thomas. Um, and I think that's kind of relevant because it, really talks about this parable in terms of it's something that Jesus actually said it's mm-hmm. it's and it allows us to really stop and think about what people heard then mm-hmm. I think I think it does um you know people were people were very familiar with the idea of a client king ruling in the place yes. of the true emperor who was Caesar um but um and so they, I think they would have heard it from those from that standpoint and and they would have they would I think they would have chuckled at the at the prospect that this guy, you know, show, throws this big wedding banquet and, and everybody no one comes thumbs, his, thumbs their nose at him, you know, <laughs> exactly. and they won't show up. Yeah. Um, now now Thomas has its own set of problems. Um, I'm I'm always amused at people who want to go want to run to wanna Thomas go there. for confirmation <laughs> because the theology of Thomas is really strange. Right, right. It's um, not in the canon. There's reasons. <laughs> there's reasons, right. There's reasons. And I don't think it's more original, but it does confirm that this this saying was, right. was yeah. probably uh, t- truly one of Jesus' sayings. And it shows that, you know, in the gospel tradition, there are some of the teachings of Jesus that were that were set in a narrative context. My, I think about the healing of the paralytic. You know, in the gospels, that is told the same way in all in all in 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 the three synoptic mm-hmm. gospels mm-hmm. the 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 feeding of the 5000 is one that's in all four gospels you know and so those apparently and they're told the same way and with the same narrative framework those apparently had a narrative framework with them but there are other sayings of Jesus that were not in a narrative framework and when you compare Matthew and Luke especially you can see how two of the canonical gospel writers make different use of the same material. Mm, yeah, and, yeah. You know, and, and that helps us to understand, well, what's Matthew's theology? What's his theological interest? What's he, what, what point is he trying to make? Right. And I think we can recognize the point that Matthew was trying to make. I don't know that we necessarily, I think in, in his context, he was trying to bolster a community under attack. Right. And, and, and they were a minority. They were, they were, the, they were the disenfranchised. They were not the people in power. Mm-hmm. Uh, n- moving forward to today, we're not so much the disenfranchised people, you know, right. of God. And so we don't, I, I don't think we necessarily, I think we can be aware of Matthew's interpretation. I don't know that we can need to attribute that lasting theological significance. Yeah. I don't think, because I, mean, I think there's some real problems there with, with the ideas of a king, you know, God slaughtering people who don't respond and cat throwing people out because they're not dressed right and things like mm-hmm. that. That doesn't work for me. Uh, it doesn't work for me either. And um, yeah, yeah I, I think this is a, I think this is a real, a real solid um, explanation of this parable. And um, I, yeah, I think very helpful for our listeners. Thanks. Yeah.
So we're back, and I'm going to ask Christy a little bit about uh, how the reformers approach this parable. See if we can we can gain some light on this. Sure. H- how did they treat sure. this parable? Well, I looked at both um, Luther and Calvin in this case, kind of our our two main main guys, and um, I think it's interesting because the the reformers take on this really has impacted our interpretation of this to the present. And of course, they gained some of their interpretations from the medieval fathers. In fact, Calvin was very much trying to, um, very much trying to be in line with Augustine. And, and, and while he tries to go after Aquinas, you can even see a little bit of comparison there. And I think it's because they come with the assumption of the allegory. Um, I mean, both Luther and Calvin said, well, obviously the, the king is God. (laughs) And obviously the servants are the prophets and obviously the crowd are the Jews. And um, they're so certain about how obvious it is that they are not even in a space of looking at it in any other means. And they certainly aren't thinking in terms of, let's think about how this was received in the time. And I think Calvin's issue is, and we talked about this last week, is that when he does his commentaries, he's he's crushing all of the Gospels together. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke anyway. Right. And so for him, it's kind of one, one presentation that comes forward. And what's kind of cool is I think he's trying to think of terms of this was, this was you know, Jesus's life come forward, but yet it was still... Filled with this kind of allegorical interpretation. This well, and when you do that, you you kind of um, you kind of erase the distinctiveness of of the synoptic gospels in in their own presentation. He does. Now he does take some liberty to say, well, Luke does it this way, mm, um, and he's more. Um, he, he's like, well, Matthew has more. You notice even what Alan did it. it it's it's this is harsher mm-hmm. polemic than Luke takes, but he says, but he kind of excuses that for the one story. So I think that's, I mean, that's just an interesting ap- approach that he had, and I think it's one that probably a lot of us come with, whether we think we do or not. I mean, how many of us read the parable and think, oh, I know this parable, and we forget to sit down and back away yeah. and dig into the. So so for them, the parable was simply a story about how God sent his servants and sent his son to draw the Jewish people to himself, and they refused the invitation. Well, that's how it starts, right? And then they quickly move from that, and they talk about that them being broader, broader church, that this can be anyone not uh. responding to Jesus's call. And I think what's interesting is then there's a little bit of a debate that goes on between Calvin and Luther based on what the, the, the wedding garment is. Mm. And so interesting. Yeah, yeah. So for um, for Luther, it the the garment is um, is Christ that is put on in. Of faith. course, that okay? makes sense with Luther. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And so he's saying, look, this is all about faith, and this is all a commentary on works, and 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 how works are are irrelevant, and and that this is about. This is about faith. So the guy without the garment didn't have faith in Jesus. Exactly. Wow. And it's super funny. There's one guy in that story, and Luther goes, he says, and it's just, all, I don't know how he gets here. This, that's a whole bunch of people that don't have faith. And I'm thinking, <laughs> it's one. And Calvin kind of goes back, and he corrects him. He said, it's only one guy. 
this one guy. <laughs> and he said, we can't make such a big distinction about faith and works because they always go together. Mm. So he kind of criticizes Luther Which for... Which makes sense because that's, that's, that's Calvin and that's a Reformed tradition. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you're seeing these two traditions mm. kind of play Interesting. out. Interesting, yeah. Um, and of course, we can't forget that Luther has to has to jump in and, and put the Pope in here too somewhere. <laughs> course, right. <laughs> right. But his he claims that the misinterpretation is 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 not this one on, on on faith and not and not the allegory, of course, but the misinterpretation is that people will continue to follow the Pope even though the Pope has proven himself to be this. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that, there's nothing even in the parable or its no, original no. context that even remotely exactly. resembles that. Exactly. Now, I looked at a sermon from 1523. So this is early, yeah. early in Luther's thought. Um, and I think what's interesting about Calvin is I had both, um, I had both the commentary, which is earlier on, and then I had the Institutes, the mm-hmm. last version. And you do see um, a progression in his thought. Mm-hmm. And in the... In the commentary, he says, look, I, I can't use this to really say too much about election at this point. Really? But by the time we get to the Institutes, it's one of the main parables he uses for the concept of election. And, of course, we all know um, um, uh, what fewer fewer chosen. Um, many are called, many are but called, fewer, fewer chosen. chosen. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Um, that's like that's like one of his big lines, and I think that's why we know it so well. That's that's Calvin. <laughs> that I, I'm surprised actually that he wouldn't have picked up on that in his commentary because, you know, you this this you know if someone if someone were were inclined to think in terms of predestination, this would be like an a, a ideal proof text for that. Exactly. Well, and he does use it in institutes. I think when he wrote that commentary, he, um, he was still in a different maybe a little bit different space. He hadn't, mm. he hadn't fully come through. The thing about Calvin, if you've read Calvin, is he's, he's, he's a systematic thinker, and he's, he's this deep theologian. And so he gets, as he's starting to process, and he, he says, I just haven't processed this yet. And so he, he, he's looking at all these pieces and how it all fits together into this big theology. And sometimes he gets into trouble. We've seen that. If you read him, you're like, oh. And then he got stuck because yeah. he talks about, that in this there is um, a, a general call, and then there's a special call. Huh. But he still goes another space and says, "But that doesn't necessarily reflect the elect." So he's trying to make sense of these different layers. Wow! So there's natural theology, there's yes. special revelation, yes, and then there's predestination. Yes, <laughs> yes. Boy, that I mean, that makes it to where, I mean, to me, that raises all kinds of questions about. Wow, is my faith enough? <laughs> it 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 does. It does, right? Yeah. So it it becomes that conundrum that you can see going on in Calvin's head as you read his stuff. So I have a question about Calvin. Um and um you know, I'm not a Calvin specialist. I'm not a historical theologian. Um I, I think I think maybe others might be a little fuzzy about Calvin's views. Um, did Calvin teach both a specific predestination and a specific reprobation? Well, he does have reprobation in the Institutes. And the kind of the leading um, scholarly analysis right now is that the reprobation came in this kind of logical process that mm. he did of thinking, well, if people are elect and saved, that means people are damned. So it's in the institutes. But the scholars are saying, but it's at the end. And it's all in, um, 
um, in his descriptions of sanctification. Uh. So, and I think there's a tendency, and I think it's a tendency within our historical past, you know, we talk about fencing the, um, uh, fencing the altar, you know, um, the whole thing of, well, we can judge because we can tell who's saved and not right. saved. And Calvin's like, no, you can't because you can't show that process of sanctification. And, and, and so it's this kind of logical end, but it's not this kind of um, evil hmm. or, or negative um, uh, cloud hanging over the head of believers yeah. that ha- became later in the tradition. Right. It came with a synod of Dort, frankly. Right. Um, and it came with this, oh, well, you can tell who's saved and you can tell who's damned and we can, we can be the police for that. But Calvin, Calvin's space on that is much less than people want to give him. So it sounds like it was more of a challenge to each individual believer to, to, uh, live a life worthy of your calling. Exactly. Exactly. Which is where, which is where a lot of commentators fall down on this parable today. Absolutely. Absolutely. But as I said, but you know, as we just talked in the first part, that may be not how that parable was heard. And I think it um, has, as we talked earlier, has other problems when we jump into the assumption of this, of this, um, this description. So, so you know, we, we talked about how, you know, for both of us, our, our take on Jesus was that his kingdom was, was inclusive, radically, and radically, radically. so. Mm-hmm. Is there any reflection of that radical inclusion in the Reformers? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, when I'm thinking about salvation by by faith alone, I mean, I really think that was Luther's vision, is that all could be saved. You know, it's it's by faith. And if you have faith, then you'll fall into this pattern of of, um, a belief. But then he saw, of course, that people didn't believe as he did. So that was a reflection of, well, what does that mean? How does that fit and so I think he why do some believe and some why don't? do some believe yeah. and why do some don't and I think yeah. that really becomes more an issue with Calvin is how do you explain those who, who don't believe or continue to to when the word is you know, clearly said to them why do they continue to resist um, but I think for Calvin more than anything else and I think this is important is sovereignty of God Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. emphasizes that, and, and he emphasizes it in this um, set of uh, commentary and in the institutes. That's first. We are not able to tell. We are not able to judge. That is not our space. Yeah. Um, um, this is God's doing, and God can do what God wants to do. Well, and you know, I think we would all agree with that. It's, it 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 still seems a bit uncomfortable to think of a God. Who you know you've got a you've got an assembly line and and God says okay I'll, I'll pick this one no 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 not you not you okay next yeah mm-hmm, I'll pick this mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. that just doesn't seem to to ring true to me with with the with the way Jesus treated people the way he he served and the way you know he taught right right and I think it's not clear at least from these passages. Um, it's not clear from these passages. I think I think Calvin would say that non-believer, not not really as many people. I mean, he does say that in this passage, but mm-hmm. this is one guy mm-hmm. um, who's not called into this general election. But and it seems to be that it's not as um, I think he thinks it's very few those who will fall and live into the faith, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then he also talks about. Um, um, 
those that that are still called and still function along. And so I think I think there's some, and I and I don't know the answer to this, and I I, I apologize. I probably have to go look and see where where is that space then. And I think whether I think it's what actually is all meant by predestination, mm-hmm. um, and whether Calvin has identified you know predeterminism, or whether that predestination is more that providential look of the of of the course of God's kingdom. And um, I am not sure how Calvin delineates that. I, I can look, but I know that is a different piece. And I know that for many who have jumped on the Calvinist bagwagon, assume that it's also predeterminism. And I don't think that's where Calvin was. Calvin's, right. Calvin's not as clear on that as people want him to be. Yeah, yeah. The, the, to a lot of people, in a lot of people's minds, predestination means predeterminism. Mm-hmm. And Calvin says, no, you know, God chooses, but we don't know whom and we don't know how and we don't, we don't, we can't know that at this in this life, right? I right. mean, it's in the end. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, I think in the space of Calvin, or at least contemporary Reformed tradition is Calvin can, or God could change God's mind. Mm-hmm. God has that that ability. Mm-hmm. And and again, Calvin's always going to emphasize that that sovereignty above everything sure. else. Sure, Yeah. sure. Thanks. Thank you. we're back and uh i i'm so excited about this this parable and i wanted to spend a little bit of time thinking about how we go forward um thinking about this because i think it is ingrained in our heads how we're supposed to understand it and yet uh, alan has um, introduced to us an interpretation that i think fits better with what we know about god and who god has revealed God's self to be. So, Alan, let's just talk about this and hit this home with everybody, the significance of this passage. Well, and, you know, it's it's one thing, you know, some people will say, well, you're just reading your theology into this. You're not really dealing with the text. And um, a lot of people do that. Um, however, I think we can find ample uh, evidence in Matthew's gospel itself, where Jesus um, is speaking about an inclusive love of God for all people, for people who would have been clearly excluded. I mean, you have the stories in Matthew's gospel of him cleansing the leper, of him healing the centurion servants, of him um, forgiving the sins of the paralytic. You know, a paralytic or a leper, they were stereotypical sinners in Jesus' day. They would have they would have been judged as someone who had done something wrong and therefore being punished for their sins. You've got the centurion who was a Roman. You know, he was a hated Roman. You, you, you've got him, him dealing with the Canaanite woman and, and, and healing her daughter. Um, but perhaps even more importantly in Matthew's gospel, there, there's kind of an edge with the tax collectors and the sinners because as we saw before, sometimes Jesus will say, you know, We'll treat them like a tax collector and a sinner, which is, it doesn't really seem Jesus-y to us. Right. But then there are several places where, you know, Jesus Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector. And, and Matthew's so happy he celebrates and invites some of his friends, and, and they're tax collectors and sinners at this, at this 
at this meal, eating with tax collectors and sinners, is a radically inclusive action on Jesus' part and something that one just did not do in Jewish society. Uh, Jesus is called a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a glutton and a drunkard, right? Right. Uh, And then... For me, the, 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 I guess the, there are a couple of high points of that in Matthew's gospel. One is the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you, which, whoa. I mean, he's talking, right. to, he's talking to Pharisees and scribes there, basically, people who were devoted to the study and the practice of God's Torah. Mm-hmm. You know, and he says to them, people who don't seem to even pay attention to the Torah, are going into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. That's huge, I think, in Matthew's context. But then the other one I think that is really clear to me is in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, when, when he says that your father causes the sun to rise and causes the rain to fall on the crops of both the good and the bad alike. Um, and, you know, it's easy to allegorize that part as well. Well, the sunrise is a blessing and the rain is, a, is, a, is, is not. Well, if you're living in, a far, in farmland, you know that both sun and rain are a blessing because it takes that for the crops to grow. So God is, God is caring for all people simply by, 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 by bestowing the blessings of sun and rain on the crops, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, Actually, to me, I, I hear a reflection in that of a psalm that in some Jewish traditions still today is, is to be prayed every day. It's Psalm 145. It's called the Eshrei, if I'm saying this right, because it begins with a Jewish uh, uh, the Hebrew word for blessed. And, and, and Psalm 145 articulates this theology of God as love, as a loving God who cares in very specific ways for all the whole created order. And, and so it's a wonderful statement of grace. It's, you could pick a, you could pick a, a worse passage to, to, to read every day. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful statement of grace. So I think we've got ample reason in Matthew's gospel to, to see that Jesus's take on the kingdom of heaven was radically inclusive and, and, and so that's the basis then for this you know, ironic interpretation of the parable. He's telling a story about the way the world works. And I like the way you phrased it. You know, how would the people in that day have heard it? I think they would have heard it. And they would have laughed at this king who lost face. Yeah. He was yeah. humiliated publicly. Right, right, right. right. And, and, and Which they is what they were all <laughs> kind of secretly hoping right, would happen. <laughs> right, and, and then and then, and then then in the story of the wedding guest who's thrown out, you know, I think they would, I think they would have been like, oh, that's not right. <laughs> right. That's not fair. That's not fair. That's not, that's, yeah. that, that's not. You didn't have a garment for him, yeah. Well, and h- how would he be expected to have a garment if he was just <laughs> brought in off the that's street, right. you know? <laughs> Um, so um, uh, I think we have ample just, I, or, and I don't want to say justification. We have ample reason to see mm-hmm. that Jesus' understanding of the kingdom, even in Matthew's gospel, is presented as one that's radically inclusive. Yeah, and very, 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 I, I, and just very cool. And and then when we come at it from that, uh, from that angle, then we're able to provide a, a consistent theology in our preaching. And I think that's really important. And I'm kind of going to a different space, but 
you know, as as pastors, I want to be consistent from the pulpit. Um, sure. And and for me to turn around and and use this as a means of judgment, then I've then I've shifted what my congregation's hearing. And uh, yeah, it sounds if you preach it the way. The, with, given the standard interpretation, it sounds very exclusive. Exactly. It sounds like a threat, I think. It, it does. And, and I think people in the pews are going to be confused by it. I think so, too. And I think it gives us, a, it would give in that other interpretation, even an excuse to, to, for us to become judgmental. And I think that is one of the, the hugest problems about being inclus- inclusive, um, as we are going about in our lives because we've been taught, oh, it's okay for us to, to put on this judgment because we can see it. And I, I've seen it in um, some of the evangelical literature um, and this placing above and not allowing people to participate fully in communion, all these other things that go in with this with these pieces of judgment. And so um, this is, I think this is huge because this takes a parable that we might have Frankly, I think we have misunderstood. I think and we I have. And I think now this puts it into the context that makes sense with, with God's, how God has revealed God's self to us. And as good, um, as good Calvinists, it also gives us this reminder that we are reformed and still reforming. Sure, sure. Well, and, um, you know, there are passages in the Hebrew Bible that speak of God reigning judgment like this right. on people, right? On his people. But, and, 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 you know, I recognize that even in the New Testament, there is, there is a judgment in the New Testament, but I, theologically, I, I cannot interpret that apart from God's love. Um, you know, that God's, God's, judgment on the people of Israel was always intended to bring them back to himself and that that um, the judgment that we all that the New Testament says we will all face is not one of whether you're in or out it's really more one of as one of my favorite reformed theologians Jürgen Moltmann puts it you know it's one of it's one of purifying us of all the th- all that would prevent us from fully entering into God's presence and enjoying God's presence right. Right. and um so so i i do i jesus himself teaches judgment you know and i i get that but i don't think that's what this is about here and right. and right. um um especially when you project that onto god i think you almost wind up creating a schizophrenic image of God right for people exactly I think that's exactly what you do and 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 um and people are confused and and I think also I've heard people say well gosh God is just all judgment and God doesn't accept me and um I think then they're missing uh the beauty of what grace is and and living into that grace which is so freeing and but when we don't when when we're not preaching that People aren't hearing that, and so they're hearing this God of judgment, and they're, I think, they, I think they're falling away from the church, and they're looking for, they're looking for acceptance. One one of my big things of lately has been wholeness and experience of wholeness, and how God brings wholeness. And there's a lot of things that that chip away at our our, our wholeness. Sure. And um, um, not the guy that's kicked out of the wedding banquet. You know, uh, this is a guy in a. In, in this parable, in this in this cloak, but 
what about the person of a different race? What about the person of, um, what about the person with a handicap? What about the person that simply um, had somebody say something mean to them? And these things chip away at their at their sense of being whole. And when that happens, then it's it's harder and harder to sure. embrace embrace the love that's really given. Sure, become it's you know, become in inside. Well, because because the question is raised, you know, okay, you tell me that God loves me, but what about all this other stuff that suggests that God might reject me? Right. <laughs> right. God might throw me out into the outer darkness exactly. where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yikes. <laughs> That's exactly. pretty scary. It is scary. It is scary. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I, I think this is a really, really important interpretation for everyone to, um, to listen to and think about. And you know, I do think that all of us have challenges with the radical inclusion of Jesus' gospel. Um. Most of us like to see ourselves, at least in the PCUSA, we like to see ourselves as being inclusive and, and maximally inclusive, right? But if, if you push, push us into a corner, there's some place, there's some person, there's some, you know, there's something that we would want to exclude, we will want to exclude. And mm-hmm. that's, I think, so for us, I think we have to, I think part of the reading of the parable for us is to challenge ourselves, you know, how... How inclusive am I truly mm-hmm. in my view of other people and in my uh, understanding that they get to benefit from God's grace just as much as I do? Right, right. I, 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 think, you've, I think you've hit it right on the head. And one of the big questions, and of course, in the middle of COVID-19, <laughs> how many of us are spending our judgment on mask wearers or not mask wearers? Oh, you know? yeah. I, you know, I didn't think about that. But boy, that is... A, that is that is a tough one. It, it is. It is a tough one, and and it's really easy to be in that space of judgment, and it's really easy to to go places you shouldn't go, you know. With well, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I find myself having to pull myself back from there. I think often. many, many of us do. Yeah. Many, many of us do, and um, and instead, how to be how how to be good people of good faith, and how to be people sure. that are are demonst- demonstrating that our mask wearing is really out of love for others um, and our concern for others catching the the disease in many cases and and, um, um, how that in wearing a mask that we really are being inclusionary. (laughs) Sure, exactly. Well, thanks, Christy. You know, I want to tell everybody one of the things I'm really enjoying about this podcast is that, um, you know, I've had all these, all this uh, background and experience in biblical interpretation and um, one of the things that really makes this fun for me is that Christy brings questions to the table that I would not necessarily have thought of. And so it helps me think in different ways and, and access that information in different ways than I would normally do. So thanks, Christy. Well, you're welcome. I feel the same way. Thanks. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. We'd like to thank Mandy Peterson for our graphic design. And Sarah Renner for her beautiful music. If you heard something that was helpful to you in your ministry, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you listen in. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.